Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you as we prepare to hear your word. We ask that you would speak by your spirit working through the word to intend on us the exact things that you would have us know about you and about this story. God, that we would not lose sight of the end result of Abraham and of everything in the Bible that Jesus tells his disciples that all these things from the law and the prophets testify about me. So, Father, may we see Jesus even here in Genesis chapter 20. Father, may we see that by the working of your word, by the power of your spirit, that we would become more faithful followers of Jesus. Father, that we would trust your commands. Father, that we would do the things that you instruct us to do through your word. Father, we pray that we wouldn't just do these things in isolation, but Father, that you would grow us as an obedient people, as a community, as a First Baptist Church of Eastwood, that we, just as Abraham, by faith, would be to our community those who have met with the one true God, those who follow him to the uttermost. Father, we pray that through these things, by your word, by your spirit, and by the faithful testimony of the followers of Christ in this place, that you would change this community with the power of the gospel. So, Father, be with us now. Be with me, your preacher. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to take you to probably everybody's favorite place, your great-grandmother's kitchen. I remember growing up, reaping the benefit of Grandma Grace's strawberry preserves. And I had a lot of strawberry preserves, but I'd also never seen how the proverbial sausage was made. Until one day, I was staying there at her home as she is beginning to make this beautiful elixir of the gods for us to partake of. I saw her cutting up strawberries. I saw the water boiling on the stove. I saw all of the things that go into Grandma Grace's strawberry preserves, and I knew this is it. (laughs) But there were things about that recipe that needed to be in there or else the strawberry preserves would one not have tasted as good but the preservative nature in them would not have even existed there needed to be these added ingredients and so she followed this top secret recipe that i'm not going to share with you it's also on the back of a pectin can but anyway there were things that needed to be in this preserve that were able to even do the things that it was to do. And so some would go right on the table. You would put it on your bread or on whatever you were going to have with Grandma Grace's preserves. And some would get stored in the freezer, adding again to its preservative nature to where you could have, if you didn't eat it all, some left over. 
There were things that the properties within that preserve, it needed or else it wasn't going to be preserved at all. And we might look at our own lives and if someone were to ask you what causes you to be preserved or what causes you to persevere and you might say, well, you know, my family's just always been strong and so I guess that's just passed down to me. Maybe we, like some of the post-game interviews in the March Madness tournament, might say, well, we've been, we've been working real hard and we're, we're just, you know, we work so well as a team and all of these things. But when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to us as believers, when we're met with the question, what causes you to persevere? Our answer must always be the Lord and Him alone. So the title of this morning's sermon is The Lord Preserves. The Lord Preserves. And we see as we've kind of stepped back. Last week we kind of finished what was kind of a detour in the Abraham faith journey where Abraham is interceding for the wickedness of Sodom. And he's standing in the place of Lot. And we saw that as Abraham stood on the mountainside, seeing the smoldering smoke coming up from the place as if a furnace, we see that in that moment, God remembered Abraham and therefore spared Lot. Now we get back to the proverbial main attraction, back to Abraham, back to where this seed of faith is going to happen. From Genesis 12, God calling him from the place of his people to go to a place that he'd tell him that he would be a blessing to all the nations, that those who bless him would receive a blessing, and those who curse him would be cursed, that a seed would come from him. Then in verse 10 of Chapter 12, we see the first instance where Abraham goes awry. What happened? He's in Egypt, and what does he do? He says, ah, Sarai, she's my, she's my sister. And it almost comes at a great detriment to Abraham and to Sarai. And here again in Genesis chapter 20, it seems as though we're stuck on repeat. Different kingdom, different king, same Abraham, same Sarah, same story. She's my sister. But there are some things that have taken place from Genesis 12.10 to now. And that God has continued to zoom in on this narrative that the seed of faith would not just come by Abraham, it would come through Sarah. That it wouldn't need to come through Hagar, that it wouldn't need to come through other means, and it's gotten to the the zoomed in uh, status of where God has already said that this seed would come through Sarah by Abraham, and you ought to name him Isaac. And he will come in just a year's time. What do we see in that moment? Sarah laughs. Sarah is at least 90 years old when she receives this 
promise. But it's in this setting that we see Genesis 20, where God has already promised to Abraham and Sarah a very specific promise of a son through them in just a year's time. You might think that Abraham would want to protect his wife in that meantime. Your wife will have a child by you in just a little over a year. But what does he do? He does the same old things. He says, she's my sister. And the narrative continues to where you might think from the onset, Abraham needs to die. Abimelech needs to die. Sarah probably maybe should also. The seed of faith is ruined because Abraham gives his wife over to this Canaanite and pagan pagan king. But what we see throughout is the Lord preserves. And in the midst of this sermon, we're going to wrestle with topics that maybe you've not wrestled with before. Or maybe you have wrestled with before, but you've come to a different conclusion. And that is, where does free will and God's providence or sovereignty, where do those things coexist? I will lean on one far greater, more prominent theologian than myself to the late J.I. Packer, who talks in terms of antinomies, what seem to be at opposition, at odds with one another, they actually aren't. That in this story, it seems to Abimelech that it's his actions that have preserved him and have preserved these other things. But in the eyes of God and through the narrator, through the words of Moses, we see that it actually is the Lord who preserved all of these instances. That the Lord preserves Abimelech, the Lord preserves Abraham, and the Lord preserves Sarah. And by so doing, he preserves the line. The Lord preserves Abimelech. One noted pastor says that in light of Abimelech's story as a Canaanite king, as a pagan king, God owes him nothing to communicate with him at all. Similar to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God owes Abraham nothing to communicate with him, to call him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. So too does he owe nothing to Abimelech. But in the midst of Abraham giving his wife over to Abimelech, God intervenes, God pursues, God perseveres, God preserves Abimelech. Verse 3, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Let's just kind of zoom in real quick. That word taken is the same word used when Adam and Eve took of the fruit in the garden. There is a guilty verdict placed on Abimelech, for he took another man's wife. So it isn't just that uh, he's complicit in this, he took another man's 
wife. And the word of God comes to him by a dream and says, you're a dead man. Now Abimelech, verse 4, had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Again, Abimelech believes in his heart of hearts, in his actions, that he has been guiltless. That in the character of God, he has done things in an upright manner. And then the response of God, yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Notice that the sin that Abimelech would have committed with having intercourse with Sarah is, would not have just been a sin against Sarah, would not have just been a sin against Abraham, it would have been a sin against God. That God preserves this entire situation by working in the physical body, in the physical realm, by ruling and reigning over his creatures. That while Abimelech does this, God himself says, I kept you from sinning against me. Who is it that causes us to love Jesus? Jesus does. Who causes us then to forsake our sin, to follow Jesus? Jesus does. Who causes us to continually come into greater conformity to Christ's likeness? Jesus does. We love because He first loved us. He preserves us. In the story of my grandmother's preserves, no ingredient in the entire list was dead. Strawberries were ripe. They were fantastic. Sugar was just like sugar. It was awesome. All of the ingredients working together, alive, good, well, made an awesome preserve. But God in our lives doesn't just preserve living things. What he does in our salvation is he makes dead things new. Makes dead things alive. Makes rotten things not rotten anymore. Thereby not only making us new, he also provides the power to preserve. continually reminded of Jude. And the benediction of Jude is blessing and honor to he who is able to keep you from stumbling. Who's able to preserve you? Jesus and him alone. And what good news that he doesn't just preserve good things, but he makes bad things good. He makes dead things alive. He's done that for you. If you've trusted in Jesus, this is true of you. That he has, by grace, through faith, made you new. Dead in trespasses, alive to worship and live for the living God. 
And it is he who keeps Abimelech from sinning. For it was I who kept you from sinning against me. And as if to drive this home all the more, a continued refrain, therefore I did not let you touch her. Why? That's not in the plan. The seed of faith does not need to come through this pagan king. The seed of faith comes by Abraham, who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's to come through an almost as good as dead 99-year-old Abraham and an almost good as dead womb of Sarah. The Lord oversees all of these things and rules and reigns over kings, over nations, over individuals, over wombs. And the continued reminder for Abimelech is not only to know this, but now walk in obedience. Return the man's wife, for Abraham is a prophet. How on earth is Abraham, the shyster who continues to give up his wife, considered a prophet? Because the Lord preserves him. What good news for shysters like us who would turn on a dime away from the true and living God according to any whim of pressure? You may say, that's a little harsh. I don't know that I would do. What causes us to sin? We have placed something in higher authority and value over God himself. The sin of lust, the sin of pride, sin of greed, any of these things remove God from the ultimate authority by which he is due and place something in its place. We've broken the commandment. Do not have any other gods before me. And almost as a mirror image, Abraham is placing his life as more valuable. Here he is again, valuing his life more than his wife. And what a justification we'll see here in just a little bit. Because the Lord's not done with Abimelech. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die and all who are Yours. This framework of blessing and cursing continues from the promise of Abraham, really from the beginning of the garden, that if you obey, you will be blessed because you'll be walking with the Lord. But if you don't, know from the jump that there will be curses. So Abimelech's response to this dream is he rose early. And called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were just as they should be, very much afraid. Then Abimelech calls Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? 
you have done to me things that ought not to be done. What an amazing pronouncement from one pagan king to one former pagan Abram. You have done what ought not to be done. Yet again, even through that, the Lord preserves Abraham. For Abimelech continues and says, What did you see that you did this thing? Verse 11, Abraham responds and says, There was no fear of God in this people. There was no fear of God in this place. That if I would say she's my wife, you would kill me like that. You would take her just as you've done. But what an amazing thing that here in verse 11, it actually is after what we see in Abimelech and his people, that there is actually a fear of God there. That when God, by revelation, arrives in Abimelech's dream, there is fear that comes over Abimelech. There is then fear as the story is retold to Abimelech's people. There is fear of God in this people. I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place. And that they will kill me because of my wife. Uh, besides, here's the justification. She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Now, if you think that this is a shyster of a story, a shyster of a man, buckle up because there are 30 more chapters in Genesis and there are far better shysters than Abraham. And we might say, canceled. Canceled. The prophet of God cannot go around giving up his wife, doing things to pagans that should not be done, and still have a role and responsibility in the kingdom of God. No. No way. What was one of our applications from last week? We must adjust our thoughts. For Abraham, just as it is for us, we are not credited righteous by our works. For if we were, you could argue that Abraham would not be justified. Abraham would not be justified by works, for the scale would tilt to the side of disobedience, giving up his wife. That's one bean over here. Uh, saying that she's my sister, another bean in the bad direction. Uh, doing what is not right in the eyes of Abimelech and his kingdom. Continue with the beans. All of these things mount to the fact that if Abraham was justified, if he was made righteous by his works, He wouldn't be at all. For it's the Lord and the Lord alone who preserves Abraham through this, through his calling earlier in Genesis 12, through all of these different things, that Abraham is known not for these things, but that he believed God. And he counted it, God counted it to him as righteousness. The Lord preserves Abimelech. The Lord preserves 
Abraham. And in the midst of this story, the Lord preserves Sarah and by so doing preserves the line that is promised. That as Abraham and Abimelech are finishing this conversation, Abimelech does just as the Lord has instructed, that he would go and would give back Sarah so that this prophet of God would pray for him and would bless him. But Abimelech, in turn, blesses Abraham. Verse 14, he takes sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And he addresses Abraham and says, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Here we go again. Abraham goes into a pagan nation, swindles a pagan king, and he returns with blessing. But Abimelech is not done. Because now he turns his blessing to Sarah. He says, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Some commentators take Abimelech's words to be in sarcasm. Hey, by the way, as you're leaving, I gave your brother some money. I don't know if that's how it should be received, but I think maybe it is the truth bearing on what Abraham has said, the relationship existing between him and Sarah, the king of Gehar, uh, Abimelech, is now affirming. Yeah, she's your sister. He's your brother. But it's less about how he addresses Abraham, but it's what he has given her. I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone that you are vindicated. What's he doing by this silver? He's saying we did not have any form of relationship. What is Moses doing by telling this story? He's saying that the line of the seed of the woman is not tainted by this story. Now we could look at the line of the seed of the woman and think Rahab, Ruth, others. But this is in its origination pure as the silver of which Abimelech provides vindicating her before all. Again, how do we reconcile this? There are clearly actions being done by actors. Abimelech is acting. Abraham is acting. Sarah is acting. I don't mean that as in they're on a Broadway show and the curtain's about to come down. They are making active decisions and choices. But just as we've seen in verse 6, the reminder in verse 18 is that there is a sovereign God who sits above it all. That after these things took place, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. This would be a really good place for a 
Why? We haven't heard anything about them at this point. Thank goodness we have verse 18. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. There is a noted preacher who says that in response to Lazarus being raised from the dead in John 11, that if Jesus had just merely said, come out, that all of the dead would rise. And therefore, he addresses Lazarus so as to make abundantly clear, this is the one whom I want to respond to this message. It is as if in the closing of Sarah's womb, uh, God is providentially causing Abimelech to leave her alone and is working at the same time to not only close her womb, but to close every single womb in Gehar. Why? To preserve the line that comes through Sarah. For in just about this time next year, I will return and you will have a son. And this son will be Abraham's son through Sarah, his wife. God is preserving through Sarah the seed of the woman. In Genesis 3.15, who will come and finally and forever crush the serpent's head. We see this realized in the New Testament authors point that this seed, this offspring, singular, is Jesus who has crushed the serpent's head and is now preserving those who have cried out to faith in him. And lest we be tempted like Abraham to give up our rights, to give up our property, to give up our salvation, to turn our backs from God, it's the Lord who preserves us. And he reminds us through the Lord's table that we will take in just a moment that he is with us, that his body broken for us. His blood shed for us is the covenant sign that if we ever were to forget God's faithfulness to us, his preserving of us, he tells us, go to the body and blood of my son who is perfectly preserved in Genesis 20. For in this Narrative, we see the sovereignty of God on display. I love the proverb that says, The hearts of kings are like streams in the hands of the Lord. He moves them in whichever way that he pleases. Hear that. The hearts of kings are like streams in the hands of the Lord. He moves them in whichever way he pleases. He's done so with Abimelech. I need to get his attention through a dream. I'll do that because his heart is like a stream in my hands. I direct it wherever I please. We see again in the Proverbs that man decides uh, which way he will go, but it's the Lord who directs his footsteps. The Lord is sovereign over these things and the plan of God to bring about this seed of the woman will not be thwarted. 
Job, in Job 42, verse 4, says that none of God's purposes will be thwarted. That God's plan, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10 says, the plan that I declare will be so from the beginning. God has planned from, the found, from before the foundation of the world that His perfect and obedient Son would come and give His life for sinful Abraham, for sinful you and me, that by faith in Him, He will preserve us, that by His dying in our place, He will raise us to new life. Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in this Jesus, in this gospel, that it is faith alone that justifies you, and it's Christ alone who will preserve you, may you continue to walk faithfully, obediently. I'm reminded of the book by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, where time after time, young Christian is walking in the way, and time after time, these afflictions assail him on the way, reminding us of our walk with the Lord in this world that is uh, of the flesh, the world, and the devil, these trials that beseech us every turn. And in this story, Christian continues to persevere. How does he do so? Because God is preserving him. So while you face trials of many kinds and hardships that seem as though they might break you, trust in the preserving nature of God. That if He has surely made you new and is preserving your soul, He will see you through to the end. Maybe we would say, but this doesn't seem good. (laughs) Maybe we might even inch into the category of, He doesn't even seem good. Know that He is working out all things for the good of those who trust Him and are called according to His purpose. That He has made you new in Christ and is continuing to preserve you until the day of His return. This is the promise. This is what is happening in Genesis chapter 20. That the promise continues, and in the midst of that promise, it is the Lord and the Lord alone who causes us to be preserved. And so when our hearts fail, when our minds cause us to doubt, when our hearts feel as though we cannot go on, we're called to look to Jesus who walked the road that we could not walk, who endured everything that we could not endure, who obeyed to the extent that we cannot even fathom, are called to look to Him, to set our eyes on Him, the promised seed 
of the woman and to remember him. To remember his body broken and his blood shed. And that's what we'll do as we take of the Lord's Supper this morning. Let me pray. We'll sing and then transition to a time of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together.